0: Man, it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord, to be here meeting and gathered as the saints of God and singing back to him. I don't know if you know this, uh, but you need to know it. There is a movement going on amongst the next generation right now, and uh, we need to celebrate that movement. You guys know that over the past month we've seen almost 50 people baptized. A lot of those were students. Should you put your hands together but what you may not know is that there was 199 students at Student Ministry on Wednesday night, and uh, God is moving through the next generation. It's so cool to see. And that's not even the best part. I came over here on Wednesday uh, during the school day, and they were in accountability groups because they have accountability groups. And we were walking a group through our school because we we're getting ready for Confluence Conference, and we we're kind of looking at different spaces that they need to use and kind of mapping all of that out. And down the hall, I heard a group of people shouting to the top top of their lungs, these praise and worship songs. So I went and snuck my head in the window, and it's this group of girls who are dancing around like singing, you know, hell lost another one, I am free, I am free. And they're just singing it, and they're ecstatic, and they're energized, and I mean, they're singing it at the top of their lungs, and joy is just exuding out of them. Um, so I actually started dancing with them and singing in the window. They opened the door, and I thought they were going to drag me in the room, but what ended up happening is they came out in the hallway, and then Mr. Covington was like, what in the world is going on down the hall? He comes barging down the hall, and uh, it was chaos for a little bit there. But the mere fact is, is that these students are on fire for Jesus, and they want the whole world to hear, and I want to get behind that, and I hope you do as well. Um, so, Corey... Charlie, all of you that serve so relentlessly with these students, you guys are making an impact. You're making an impact in the lives of these students, and uh, we're going to fill that for days, months, years to come. Um, We're going to begin a new series today. Um, I'm super excited about this series. It's called The Broken King. We're going to be exploring the life of David, okay? Now, we're not actually going to study the life of David exhaustively because there's a lot to be said about David in Scripture, all right, so instead we're going to kind of scroll through David's Instagram feed, all right? We're going to look at his Facebook posts and we're going to kind of get a glimpse of the snapshots of his life, who he is, what he did and why that actually matters. So if you're here today and you don't know anything about David, that's okay. We're going to catch you up on who David is. And if you're here today and you know a lot about David, well, you're going to be reminded and your memory is going to be refreshed a little about who David is. Okay. So today I want to set the stage for the rest of the series. We're going to walk through this study together um, all the way to the first Sunday of December. All right. So we're going to be in this for a long, long time. And uh, I'm excited about what the Lord's going to teach us. So who is David? All right, David is known as the king of Israel. Many of you have heard that Ohio State is called the Ohio State University, all right? Well, this is the king of Israel. That's who David is. He was a warrior, but David was also a songwriter. He was a shepherd boy who gained his fame by being a skilled musician, and also he gained his fame by killing the giant Goliath with just a stone and a sling. In fact, David is so popular that some of you in this room are still naming your kids after him. Okay? Of the 150 Psalms in your Bible, 73 to 75 of them were written by King David. Sixty-six Old Testament chapters are written about him. Fifty-nine New Testament verses reference this king of Israel, the king of King David. More is said about David in the Old Testament than anyone else in the entire Bible. His name means beloved. And he is the only individual throughout all of scripture that God says, this is a man after my own heart. Now, wouldn't that be cool? If God was in a conversation with one of your family members or one of your friends, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God said about you, man, he or she is a man or a woman after my own heart. I mean, just think about the impact, the, the, the gravity of that situation, that God looks at your friend, your family members, and says, man, he's a man who fervently chases the heart of God, or, or she is a woman who passionately pursues the life of Christ, or, he, or she is a boy or girl that dives into the depths of the divine. Wouldn't that be awesome if that was said about me, or if that was said even about you? But the question that we need to answer today is what drove David to chase after the heart of God? We know that he did. We know that God references that in Scripture saying that David is a man after his own heart. But what drove David after God's own heart? Listen, David chased God's heart because David was aware of how hard God chased David's heart. And when you and I become so aware and so in tune with the reality that we do not deserve God chasing after us, but yet he did it anyway, that starts to lead you and I to chase a little harder after him. See, David recognized that God is so good and so loving and so gracious that even when he did not deserve it, God came chasing after him. And as David reflected on God's goodness, what did it do? Well, it drove him to chase God even more and more every day. This is what we've been saying for quite some time now, for really a year, church family, that as you and I grow more and more aware of the character of God, who he is and what he does, it drives us to want to know him more. And that's exactly what happened with the life of David. So what we're gonna do this morning is this morning we're gonna look at four characteristics of the goodness of God that should drive you and I to chase hard after him. How many of you in the house today wanna chase hard after the heart of God? Okay. For you 50, we're going to, I'm just kidding. For those of you who do want to do this, we're going to learn how to do that together today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel is the 10th book of the Old Testament. So you can start in Genesis, go 10 books to the right. You're going to find 2 Samuel, go to the 7th. Chapter, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. Now, listen, we're going to be jumping into the middle of David's life, and you're probably thinking, well, I thought we were going to spend all this time exploring this character. We are, but we're going to start in the middle of his life today, and then we're going to go back next week, all right? And then we're going to cover the course of his life, and we're going to end in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, at the very end of this in December. So that's where we're headed. So we're going backwards next week. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is what's referred to as the Davidic covenant, okay? This is the portion of scripture where God makes a covenant, a promise, with the king of Israel, he makes a promise with King David. Now at this point in the story, you're jumping into the middle, so we're in 2 Samuel chapter seven. At this point in the story, all is well with King David. David is established as king. His kingdom is very stable. Everything in his life is going pretty smooth at this point in his life. The land is thriving. The economy is prospering. In fact, life is good for King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So just like you and me, what would we do if life were going good? Well, we would kick back and relax a little bit. We start to coast a little bit when life is going good. And that's exactly what King David is doing here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, so there's four characteristics of the goodness of God that I believe will drive you and I to chase harder after him. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is this. God is a God of amazing grace. The God that you and I serve, the God of David, the God that you and I worship every single Sunday, this is a God of amazing grace. Look at verse 1. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, I told you everything was going well in the life of David at this point, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Could stop there. So here you got King David, and he's sitting on the porch with his pastor, Nathan. It's essentially what Nathan was. Nathan served in many ways as a spiritual mentor, if not a pastor, to the king. So you got King David and you've got Nathan, his pastor. They're on the front porch, I can just imagine it. You have King David over here in the rocking chair and you have Nathan over here on the porch swing. And they're just chit-chatting, they're just talking. In one hand they have a Snickers bar and in the other hand they have a Dr. Pepper, all right? They're just kicking it, they're chilling it, they're doing what boys do, right? And then all of a sudden the conversation gets a little quiet. And Nathan looks at David, and Nathan can tell that David is thinking something pretty deeply. So he just kind of waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then all of a sudden, David's thoughts that he's thinking, that he's processing, come out of his mouth. And by the way, church family... Even if you're a pastor, even if you're a king, it's not good when your thoughts start coming out of your mouth. (laughs) You need to filter them, you need to vet them before they come out of your mouth. And Nathan is sitting here listening to the king start to ponder and process and then his thoughts come out of his mouth and this is what he says. He says he starts to notice that he lives in this nice house made of cedar, right? But right outside his front door is the tabernacle of God. This is where God dwells. This house of cedar, David says, is where I dwell. The tabernacle is a torn and tattered tent. This tent has traveled with God's people for over a hundred years. The color of the tent has faded. The corners of the tent are now frayed. The tent is worn, it's tattered, it's not not new, it doesn't look nice. And and God is, is, is here in this text, mind you, by the way, God told his people to build this for him. So just remember that God gave instruction to his people to do that, and inside this tent, what existed? The presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. So so here's what David is thinking. David knew something's not right about this picture, and maybe you already picked up on it. That sinful man is living in a palace made of the most expensive, fragrant wood, while God, the God of the universe, namely, is dwelling in an old, molded tent, And David is wrestling with this, and he's thinking out loud, how can this be? Like, how can this be that here I am, the king, a worldly king, a secular king, a king who who follows God, nonetheless, but still I'm not God. I'm dwelling in this nice house while right outside my front door is the very creator and sustainer of the universe, and he's dwelling in an old, molded, torn-up tent. And then Nathan responds like a typical pastor in verse 3. He says, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Nathan here, okay? But it doesn't matter if you're at this church or another church. If your pastor tells you to follow your heart, you better check it. (laughs) You better check. Like, your heart is deceitfully wicked. No man can know it. And sometimes your heart will mislead you and misguide you, and it will lead you to the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Now, Nathan did know that David followed God. And Nathan did know that the God of the universe was the one who occupied the throne of David's heart. So it was okay for Nathan to say, hey, if this is what your heart feels like it needs to do, then follow that. Like, do that. And that's essentially kind of what he's saying here. And this is where things get real interesting. Go look at verse 4. It says, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan... Essentially, God was coming to Nathan and say, hey, remember the advice you gave David earlier? Well, you need to go back and you need to correct it. Verse five, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? That's not God's way of saying, hey, David, will you build me a house to dwell in? That's God's way of saying, who are you to build me a house to go and dwell in? So what God is doing here for David is he's rejecting David's idea. Though David's idea was rooted in good intentions, though it came from a pure heart. God is still nonetheless rejecting David's idea. He is telling David to spare himself the trouble of building him anything. See, David wanted to build God a house, a house for God to dwell in, but God now is rejecting that plan. You need to understand the historical context of what's going on so that you can really kinda dive into the depths of the story. This is what's happening, okay? In these days, the people of the land would build their king an elaborate palace. That's what they would do. The beauty of the palace is what made the king famous in the land. This is exactly what was done for David. King Hiram of Tyre built David a palace. He built it in a big and beautiful way so that David's fame would spread throughout the land. And those of you going to Israel with me, you're going to see that they built big, elaborate palaces for their king's because they wanted their kings to be famous throughout all of the land. But when David wants to do this for God, the one true God, what does God do? God rejects it. He rejects it. Why why does God reject this? If this was from a pure heart, if if David's motives are pure, why would God reject? Have you ever heard, hey, don't rob someone of their blessing? And here God is basically saying to David, no, I'm gonna rob you of your blessing. I, I don't need that. And that's what he's doing here. Listen, God doesn't operate in the ways of the world. And that's what he wants us to see. See, in the eyes of God, you are always the debtor. You are always the one who owes something. And God is always the giver, always. You are always the debtor, he is always the giver. And that's what makes the grace of God so amazing, church family. See that even in my ignorance and even in your rebellion, even in the midst of our own wickedness and our own sin, even while we were in tremendous debt to God, he offers redemption and salvation as a free gift to us. We're the ones in debt, yet he's the one who gives. And there's no price tag on it. There is, it costs him His son, but there's no price tag that we pay in order to get the gift that God gives. You are always the debtor. And God is always the giver. It's called grace. So let me sum this up in one simple phrase for you that I think it will stick enough to kind of land on your heart. Listen to this. Chasing after the heart of God is not about what you do for God. Chasing after the heart of God is about standing in awe of what God has already done for you. See, you and I become more fervent and more zealous in our pursuit of God when we stand in awe of what the Lord is doing in and through our lives. It's not about you and I offering God anything. It's about God having the entirety of our lives, and because of that, we stand in awe of who he is and what he's doing. The the most common thing in all of church that keeps people from coming to God is they feel like they have to clean themselves up. Man, i got to get myself together. i got to clean myself up. Before I can come to God, i got to get all these bad habits dealt with. I've got to weed them out of my life. I've got to get my marriage right. I've got to get, you know, get the cigarettes out of the dashboard. i got to get the, the, the bottle out from up under the seat. And I've got to do all these things before I can come to God. And God's simply saying, that's not true. Like, that's not true. You come to me like you are and let me clean you up. You can't do it in and of yourself. So God is talking to somebody today, I feel it, I know it. You came in here today and you think, you know what, I gotta get myself right before I can start walking with the Lord and that is simply a lie from hell. The truth of God is this, that you come to him just like you are and he will begin the process of regenerating and renewing your heart and creating a new person within you. You are always the debtor, he is always the giver. He's a God of amazing grace. But There's a second thing. Not only is he the God of amazing grace, he is also a God of unbelievable compassion. He's a God of unbelievable compassion. If I were to ask you on a scale of one to ten to rate yourself if you believe you are a compassionate person, most of you, if not all of you, would rate yourself above a five. There's a few of you who are like me that would say, no, I'm a two, right? But most of us try to rate ourselves well when it comes to compassion. I think what you're going to see Biblical compassion isn't anything like what you and I refer to as compassion. But God is a God of unbelievable compassion. Look at verse 6. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up from is- the people up from Israel, from Egypt, to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Don't miss that. God is saying that I have been moving around in a tent with my people. That's what he's telling us. You know what this is called to? or called, theologians refer to this as the incarnational principle. It simply means that God lives like we live. That's what it means. It's called the incarnational principle. You live in a tent, I'm going to live in a tent with you, God says. Why is this comforting? Why should this encourage you? Because if you're roaming around without a place to go, God is saying, well, I'm roaming around with you. If you're suffering, God's saying, well, I'm suffering with you. If you're experiencing hardship, God is saying to you, I experience hardship with you. If you are hurt, I hurt with you. If you are rejoicing, I rejoice with you. These are some of the most comforting verses in all of scripture, if you really understand the incarnational principle. To know that God is a God of unbelievable compassion and he is right there with you at all times and in all places. That's the God that you and I serve. You feel alone. Guess what? He's with you. You're wrestling with depression. Guess what? He's with you. You feel confused and like everything's chaotic all around. Guess what? He is with you. When you feel like the waves of the world are crashing down on your soul, guess what? He's with you. He's there. He's not absent. He doesn't abandon you or leave you. He is right there with you, the psalmist in Psalm 165, he he said it simply like this. He said, "Our God is full of compassion." You know what that means? That means that the tank of God's compassion is always on full. That means you went to God for compassion yesterday, and you went to God already for compassion today. And guess what? The needle didn't move below the F. It's, you know, when you pump your gas and you get to the F and you kinda go a little bit further than the F, like that's God's compassion. There's nothing you can do, church family, to move the needle of God's compassion. It's always gonna be full and it's always gonna be for you and he's always gonna release it at you. All you have to do is run to him because he is a God of unbelievable compassion. It's who he is, it's his character. He cannot be anything less than unbelievably compassionate. If we understood this reality, like David did. It would wreck our lives. It would change our lives completely. See, what you and I need to know is David did experience many trials, and he also experienced many triumphs. But in David's life, when you study it throughout Scripture, you'll almost see that he had more tragedy in his life than he did triumph. And it's true. Majority of the Psalms, he's running from enemies and trying to spare his own life. He wasn't treated kindly by a whole lot of people. In fact, He constantly fretted to stay alive. David's life wasn't easy. Listen to it. He was a misfit in his own household. Not only was he a misfit in his own household, he was raised in a family of many siblings. And you know what they did with him? They threw him out in a field and they forgot about him. In fact, when, when, when they come searching for a king, David's dad didn't even remember where David is. Like this, is what, this is how David was treated in his own home. He was given the job of a shepherd. That job stood out for the least esteemed son of the household. And then when he was put in the field by himself, day and night, he was left to fend for himself without any help. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. And David had to learn how to fight them off if he was going to stay alive. If he didn't fight them off, they would devour his father's sheep. And that was an absolute no-no. So this was the stress, this was the life that David lived. And guess what David says in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Listen to his words. He says, it was the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. David understood the incarnational principle. David understood that it doesn't matter how hard my life gets and it doesn't matter if I'm a forgotten son in the middle of the field fighting off lions and bears. The Lord, my God, is always with me. My brothers might not be with me. My mom and dad might not be with me. But I can rest assured of this, that the God of the universe has not left and not fled and not abandoned. He is right here with me. Is that not good news? That's good news, family. God saw his child in need. David learned that everywhere he went, God was with him. God saw his child in need, and in compassion he acted and delivered his child. That's what compassion is. See, the biblical definition for compassion is to see a need, and then you act on that need. You see a need, you act on that need. Isn't this what God did for us? God saw that you and I, our greatest need, was redemption from the sin that you and I committed by nature and by choice. And not only did he see the need that we had to be reconciled back to the Father through the sending of his Son, but what did he do? He acted through sending his Son into the world to live the life we were supposed to live, but because we didn't, he then, and then went de- died the death that was ours to die because it was our sin that had to be atoned for. That's compassion. Compassion is you see a need, And then you act on that need. You need to hear this, church family. Compassion is always costly. Compassion is always costly. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your effort. It will cost you your financial resources. It's more than passing a granola bar out the window of your car to the man that's homeless at Target. Compassion is much more than that. Compassion is much more than putting a post on Facebook that pulls up people's heartstrings about something good that you did for someone else. It is much more than that. It sees the deepest need and then it acts on that deep need. What is the deepest need of all of humanity? It's to be reconciled back to God. The deepest need of all of humanity is that somebody, something, atones for the sin that you and I have committed. Or if not, then we're gonna forever be separated from God in a literal place called hell for all eternity. So the deepest need that I have and the deepest need that you have apart from God is that that sin would be atoned for. And God saw that. And in compassion, he moved because of that. He sent Jesus for us. Listen, you have a neighbor And the deepest need of your neighbor is that they know Christ. You have a coworker and the deepest need of your coworker is that they know Christ. You have a family member, a friend. The deepest need in their life is not that you help them out of their financial situation or not that you put a roof over their head or not that you put clothes on their backs or not that you put a meal on their table. The deepest need that they have from you is a relationship with Jesus that they would not not know if you did not share it. And if we are people of compassion, we will see the deepest need of their heart. And like God, we'll move towards that need and we'll meet it. We'll share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my question to you, again, if you rated yourself 1 to 10, do you really consider yourself to be a person of unbelievable compassion? I mean, do you love like that? Do you live like that? Or do people just annoy you and you try to steer clear from them at all costs? You know, the person you're trying to steer clear from is maybe the one person who needs Jesus the most. And church, it's time for us as a church. We, my friend, um, one of our city councilmen, Mr. Elton Alexander, is up here. He's joining us for our service today. And, you know, we, we sit in these meetings. We sat in one this past week and we talked about... Um, some of the crime that's in our community, and we have a great community, a great community, and actually crime is going down, which is a, a significant thing. I'm talking specifically about Stockbridge. And, and when, you, when you look at it and you ask these questions, well, what solves crime? You know what we concluded? When the church is the church in our neighborhoods, crime decreases. When more people come to know Jesus and their hearts are regenerated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what? Crime is dealt with. And guys, we can't sit here and complain at statistics on our computer screen or even on our TV screen that are being shot at us every single day if you and I are not going to move with unbelievable compassion and do something about it. You are the answer to our city's greatest need, and that is the gospel. And that's why I love our church, because we're committed to making that happen. Well, God continues in verse 7. we got to move. God God continues in verse 7 by saying to David, and this is my paraphrase. He says, David, you've never heard me complain one time about the tent that I'm dwelling in. (laughs) You haven't heard me complain about that? Why are you trying to fix a problem that's not really a problem? I'm completely content and satisfied where I'm at. That's what he's saying. And he says, like, why would you even build me a house made of cedar anyway? I mean, it's not cedar made for rabbits and gerbils? It's not made for me. Essentially is what he says in verse 7. God isn't worried about the earthly accommodations. Why? Why do you think God's not worried about earthly accommodations? Well, it's because he has already seen his heavenly home. When God left heaven, Jesus left heaven to this earth, he didn't care about what kind of shack he lived in. He knew the mansion that was stored for him in glory. Like, he knew that he was only passing through. He was here for a little while, but he was going to live there forever. And he mattered, And what mattered most to him was what, where he was going to live forever, right? Like, this is just temporary. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, watch this, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, and watch, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Watch, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great uh, ones of the earth. Verse 10, here it goes again. And I will appoint a place for my people. Jump down to verse 11. From that time or from the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, watch, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You can think you're going to make me one, but the Lord's like, no, I'm going to make you one instead. Do you see what's happening here? The emphasis of all of these verses, it's not on David. The emphasis of these verses, they're on God. He's reminding David, it's not about what you can do for me. It's about what I can do for you. You are always the debtor. I am always the giver. Listen, this is David's biography. And David is not the main character of his own story. I don't know what your life looks like, but what I do know is you're not the main character of your own story either. God is. God is. God is writing the story. Your story and my story, it just fits within God's story, and that's what he's showing David here. God is putting David in the background of this story so that he can be, so that God can be at center stage. God says, there's not enough room for you and me to share the spotlight. I'm gonna share the spotlight. This is why we live for God's glory, not our own. There's not enough room for you and God to share the spotlight. God has to be in the spotlight. Like we have to worship him and adore him and esteem him and keep the spotlight well on him. Why? Because he is showing us that he's a God of unbelievable compassion. He is a God of beautiful, gorgeous love. He came to dwell with the people of Israel, but he did so as a pilgrim in a tent for the sake of their redemption. Again, because God understood this isn't my home. This isn't my home. He's a God of unbelievable compassion. Chasing after the heart of God is not about what you can do for God, it's about standing in awe of what God has already done for you. There's a third thing. It's this He is a God who keeps His promises. He's a God of amazing grace. He's a God of unbelievable compassion. And He's a promise-keeping God. He's a God who keeps His promises. Verse 12 When your days are fulfilled and you die or you lie down and you're with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after, after you who shall come from your body and I will establish this kingdom. So he's saying out of the lineage of David will come a son. That's what he's telling him here. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. This is a two-part answer to this question, okay? God's making a promise to David that his kingdom will live forever. Well, who's the son? Well, on one hand, right? on one hand, the son of Solomon. That's who's going to follow David, his literal son, and he's going to continue the the kingdom that David had already started. But as we just mentioned, there's a more ultimate meaning here. He's saying that through the line of David would come a capital S son. That's the son of God, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited and much-anticipated Messiah. The throne of David would eventually come to an end, but God is saying the throne of God will live forever ever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, hope, son commits iniquity. We just talked about Jesus. Store that. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of those sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is making a promise to David and guess what? He keeps it. He keeps it. See, this son, Jesus, would never commit a sin. You know that. However, he would endure the penalty of sin. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought who peace? Peace us peace, and with his wounds, who are healed? We are healed. Not just me healed and not just you healed. The church of God is healed through the wounds of Christ the Son. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us in this room, we have all turned our own way, every one of us, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of uh, us all. That's the beauty of the gospel. And because Jesus died for me, and because Jesus died as me, this assures us that God's steadfast love will never end because he's a God who always keeps his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. What's your point? God promised David that he's building a kingdom that will last forever. What kind of kingdom? This is an eternal kingdom kingdom the real question on the table today is do you belong to the eternal kingdom are you in have you turned over and surrendered every aspect of your life to the lordship of christ have you surrendered even your political ideas to the lordship of christ have you surrendered everything to god's ownership Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be a part of it. He died so that you could be a part of it. But you must decide if you will continue to chase the pleasures of this world or if you will surrender to him and begin to chase after the heart of God. You know the most beautiful part of all of this, though? Is that if you are a child of God, he wants to use you to build his kingdom. You have a role to play in continuing to build the kingdom of God. And that is to lead men and women and neighbors and coworkers in the nation's To the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is a God who keeps his promises, and this is how we're gonna end this morning. He's a God of miraculous greatness. He's a God of miraculous greatness, and this will be quick. It says this in verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought out about all this greatness to make your servant know it. I love this. David started this conversation wanting to go build for God, right? He ends this conversation by basking in humble adoration before God, And he says in verse 21, 22, he says, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Church, let that be the declaration of your heart this week. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 23, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, listen, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And in verse 26, he ends like this, and your name will be magnified forever. That's the beauty of this God. These are some powerful words here. Your name will be magnified forever. You are great, O God. There's none like you, and there's no God besides you. You make a name for yourself, O Lord. Listen, the watching world isn't supposed to look at the Christian and marvel at the things that the Christian are doing for God. The watching world is supposed to look at the Christian and marvel at the things that God is doing for the Christian. When Henry County and its citizens looks at Eagles Landing, it shouldn't be, oh man, look at all the things Eagles Landing's doing for God. No, it should be, look at all the things that the people of Eagles Landing, that God is doing for them. This is a good God who gives good gifts to his children. And as a good God gives good gifts, guess what happens in the heart of his children? They stand in high school hallways and classrooms and they sing to the top of their lungs, hell has lost another one. I am free. I am free. And guess what? I don't want that to be boxed into the classroom. I want to bring that into the halls and take that into the streets until the whole county hears the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The same gospel that saves me can save them because there's no one outside the reach of God's hand. And this morning, there are two simple ways I think you and I can respond. First, if you don't know Jesus, today is the day. He is a good God and he is chasing hard after your heart and you'll only start chasing after him when you recognize how hard he's chased after you. And then the second thing is this. If you are a child of God, let's get on our face before him and thank him for the movement that he's doing amongst these young people. Let's thank him for the movement that he's doing amongst our church. Let's thank him for all the souls that have come to know Jesus and have went through those waters of baptism and we're gonna see even more in the coming weeks. And let's say, God, listen, unless you show up, I don't wanna be there. Unless you show up, I don't want anything to do with it. And when we gather together as the saints on Sunday and we scatter throughout the week, let's make sure that there is one anthem and one song that we're singing. holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if the whole earth is full of his glory, then every home and every neighborhood and every family and every street needs to be full of the glory of God. And it's our job, unless we go, how will they know? How will they know? It's our job to take the gospel to those who need it most.